the sacrifice to our God. Would you all have maidens like this for your wives? Then conquer and breed. Kill the white man and take his women. It's Rod here, welcoming you to episode 54 of The Bloody Pit. I'm just jumping in here real fast before the conversation between Brian and myself begins to uh, let you know that, uh, yeah, we range a little all over the place in this one. We uh, start out talking about the fantastic 1932 Mask of Fu Manchu film starring Boris Karloff and the sultry and seductive Myrna Loy, and we advance from there to the Christopher Lee films made in the 1960s. We do jump around a bit, as I said, and there's a little bit of talk about the drums of Fu Manchu, the uh, serial made in the 40s, and uh, just generally a whole lot of talk about the Yellow Peril, Fu Manchu, how the character came about, a little bit about Sax Romer, a little bit about the novels, and such connected things. Yes, Fu Manchu is a fascinating character, And uh, it does seem to be the thing that Brian and I like to talk about when we sit down. That would be pulp characters. The hero pulp stuff. Or in this case, with Fu Manchu, the villain pulp stuff. So, if you know a little bit about Fu Manchu, or if you know a whole lot about Fu Manchu, this should be a fairly interesting conversation. At least, we hope so. So, sit back, listen to us for a little while, talk about Fu Manchu and his dastardly deeds... We'll be right back in a second, and uh, we'll get this thing started. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and The Head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. White Zombie, a new novelization of the classic horror movie from award-winning author Stephen D. Sullivan. Available now in print and all ebook formats. Find it on Amazon, Smashwords, Drive-Thru Fiction, and other quality outlets. Also available in a special edition, including the complete movie script. Grab White Zombie before it grabs you. Details at sdsullivan.com. (laughs) 
Welcome to the Bloody Pit. It's been a few years since I last spoke with my guest today. Uh, he and I used to, um, I guess, collaborate. That's not really the right word. I used to write for him for a website he had uh, years ago called Eccentric Cinema. If not for this man, uh, I probably wouldn't have had the courage to uh, inflict others with my opinions on films. Um, that could be a good or a bad thing. Maybe this fella is the cause for a lot of pain in the world. But let me introduce him. His name is Brian Lindsay. Brian, say hi. Hello. Greetings from Memphis. How y'all doing? I am fine here in Nashville. Uh, it's a strange fact that we live in the same state and we've never been in the same room. All right. Yes. It, it, do you fear that if we ever got in the same room, there might be a problem? There might be a warping of the space-time continuum, and we blink out of existence. <laughs> yeah. Oh my! Well, anyway, the, the 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 among the many things that we share, besides the state of Tennessee, is an interest in uh, eccentric cinema and pulp fiction which brings us to the topic today before we talked about doc savage uh, in an episode a few years ago and uh we're long overdue for a conversation about one of your favorite characters in uh pulp uh, i guess pulp fiction i guess that would be the way to put it uh yeah definitely uh sax romer uh he was uh pulp one of the pulp masters until i started doing a little bit of research well i should say I've read several of the Fu Manchu novels, the original Sax Romer Fu Manchu novels, and I've really enjoyed them, but I never paid attention to the publishing history. I was not aware that the first one was published in uh, 1913, which makes him a contemporary of Edgar Rice Burroughs, one of my favorite writers of all time. And that means that, uh, although clearly Mr. Romer was not nearly as prolific as Edgar Rice Burroughs, um, they were being published right around the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, right. Uh, you know, I guess what that's Edwardian England, right prior to World War One, mm -hmm. and obviously, you know, uh, you know, Romer was such was so inspired by Conan Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes stories. In fact, the first three books are pretty much, I mean, which were serialized, uh, I guess, in. Uh, magazines they uh they're pretty much a pastiche of homes and i mean the the structure everything uh narrated by the doctor sidekick of the hero who's you know very much homesian and the really fascinating thing to me about the the, the food books which i didn't get into until i didn't start reading until about five years ago when uh titan books began re reprinting them in really nice trade paperback editions. but the thing that uh really uh i guess unusual and that i liked about the series was that you know it starts prior to world war one you know 1912 1913 by the time you get to the end of the series the the 13th uh book and then the, the there was a final volume that was uh, like a, a collection of uh, a novella and a couple of uh, short stories but they span you know pre-world war one all the way to the height of the cold war and into the, you know, the beginnings of the space race. So, you know, not, I mean, Holmes pretty much stays in that same, you know, uh, milieu, as they say, of, uh, 
uh, Victorian, and then at you know at Ed, beginning of Edwardian England. Uh, Bond is pretty much a character of the late fifties, early sixties, you know, in the books anyway. But Foo spans decades and many changes in the world, and they're reflected in the books. And uh, to me, that that was a that was a really interesting point about them. Yeah, when um, we decided to do this podcast on the character and on a bunch of the films, I decided to go back and read another one of the Fu Manchu novels I had not gotten to before. And uh, my book collection is a giant jumble in the inner room. It's just a big <laughs> pile of books. And so I couldn't I couldn't go and like lay my hands on um, – I think I've read the first three chronologically and – Unfortunately, the one that just came to my hand to read this time out, just to reacquaint myself with the style, was uh, Emperor Fu Manchu, uh, published in 1959, which is the very last of his, uh, the, the very last has, of Romer's novels. That one, if I remember correctly, that's the one with the lab in like Manchuria, and there's like a secret army of walking dead, or basically reanimated corpses <laughs> towards the yeah, end of the book. Yeah. Uh, Fu Manchu has has uh, constructed the kind of living dead men. They they act sort of more like what I would refer to as uh, voodoo zombies in a way, but they're created in a scientific method, as that dastardly bastard would do. <laughs> and uh, it, it was a great read, of course. I've always enjoyed um, uh, the Fu Manchu novels. Every one of them I've read. But um, they are a, an odd thing. If you come at them, even as a fan of pulp novels, the Foo novels are a little more strange in the the fact that the the characters, the two main – well, the, the antagonist and protagonist are rarely in the same room together. And you're not going to have mm -hmm. scenes where Fu Manchu and Nalan Smith come to blows or anything like that. So in that respect, they are much more like – the Sherlock Holmes novel, the, uh, the Sherlock Holmes stories, of course, because we're not talking about generally fisticuffs between, you know, uh, the, the master villain or whoever Holmes is attempting to find. But uh, even if there may be some some scuffles and gunfights along the way, they're with underlings. And that's what I love about Fu Manchu is that he is very much that man in the background manipulating people and with seemingly an endless stream of minions that he can send out to do his bidding. Yes. The, uh, his army of dacoits, uh, which, um, I, I guess really, you know, a term that's, you know, fallen out of favor, but I guess, uh, Romer, I guess really liked, uh, reading Kipling, you know, I guess turn of the century. And, uh, there are a number of, uh, I guess, dacoits are basically just bandits, people that practice uh, banditry and piracy in India and Burma. And so, you know, it's, it's, I guess it sounds cooler when you have, you know, your henchman army of dacoits as opposed to just my henchman army, you know, but, uh, uh, and give them a name, it, I guess. Right, right. And it's, uh, Interesting that you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, Emperor Fu Manchu, the, the book you read most recently, because that also being the, the last complete novel really points out the the, the major change in the, the, the book series, in culture, because, it, you know, they, when the, the books start in 1913, they're very much that, you know, the yellow peril and, yeah, uh, yeah. But, you know, very politically incorrect incorrect by today's standards and, and, and rightfully so, because a lot of it is it's, it's blatantly as we can look back on it now and see 
kind of racist, you know, well, kind of. Well, I wouldn't it say kind of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. But by the time you get to Emperor Fu Manchu in 1959, the main the main hero who, you know, Nayland Smith, who's got to be like 80 by now or, or older, maybe he's getting some of that elixir of life. We can talk about a little later. But uh, I did uh, wonder man, about that. The, 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 the main uh, hero of that book is a Chinese American CIA agent, if I'm if I remember correctly. Yes. So you yes. go from, you know, the yellow peril of 1913 to. You know, the hero of the book, you know, that uh, Nayland Smith shows up uh, toward the end to assist and that who uh, he's working for Nayland Smith is a Chinese American battling a foo who, if I also remember correctly, uh, as would be the case with Fu, is I think what the secret labs in like China, but the Soviets are uh, in charge of it. And actually, he's double crossing both sides. (laughs) You know, yeah, he's, yeah, you're right. He's he's an anti-communist, which uh, uh, another thing I guess uh, different about the uh, the Fu series of uh, books and and, and uh, movies is that unlike say a Moriarty or a Blofeld, you know those supervillains they're basically in it for the money, <laughs> you know, and Fu is not his his chief goal is political in nature, and that is to you know. China should rule the world, but a non-communist China. So uh, I guess the uh, the communist revolution kind of set his plans back. You know? Well, that's something I found fascinating about that novel, Emperor Fu Manchu, was that clearly uh, Romer was keeping up with the times and keeping up with the, the political changes in China and the rest of the world and kind of folding Fu's story into it. And um, yeah, you're right. I'm not. We we know how they get around Fu Manchu, you know, being this vital alive man in 1959. He's he's constructed this elixir of life that keeps him artificially young. But uh, there's never a noise made about Nayland Smith and just how in the hell he's still kicking around. <laughs> right, because I mean, he's, uh, at least in his 30s, if not older, in 1913. So perhaps. <laughs> You know, Fu, he, he's got to have, you know, what good is being a supervillain if you don't have a, a, a nemesis, arch nemesis. So maybe he's been secretly, uh, you know, uh, feeding uh, uh, Nayland Smith some of that uh, elixir <laughs> to keep him young just so they can keep the battle going. Which maybe really he's got a, he's, uh, he's infiltrated uh, Nayland Smith's office and has his secretary putting this stuff in his tea or something. Right, right. <laughs> that uh, yeah. that, that battle. The battle never really ends because, um, you know, it just, it, uh, I guess, you know, Romer died uh, and uh, the books stopped, uh, though there have been some um, uh, additional books uh, that were officially sanctioned, written in the last few years by William Patrick Maynard that are well worth a read. Uh, that, but they kind of go back and, uh, you know, are inserted in between the events of the uh, original series. So, doesn't food doesn't really get totally defeated. So I guess that, you know, the battle will rage on, um, that, and, and another thing that, uh, you know, imagine for all the, uh, fame of professor Moriarty, arch nemesis of, uh, Sherlock Holmes, he appears in, he actually appears in, I think what one story, that's it. Uh, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, Blofeld only appears in, in I think three of the bond novels. 
and really, you know, and the Spectre uh, as a, a enemy organization doesn't appear until at least halfway uh, through the series. But Fu is, uh, I guess, one could say, most unique in that the 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 entire series is structured on the supervillain. Even though, as you say, he sometimes makes only supporting appearances, and he appears more in some books than others, but. In a big way, I'd say Fu is much like uh, Count Dracula in Bram Stoker's novel in that, sure, he appears. Whenever he does appear, it's important and things happen, but he's always the source and the, uh, of discussion and what and motivating, motiva- motivating the plot and uh, everything. He's the puppet master. So... Even when he's in the shadows, everything still revolves around him. And uh, for you know to be able to sustain a series uh, for that long, even though there was like a I guess right during the second I mean first World War rather stopped writing the series. Apparently, Romer was uh, sick of writing about Fu Manchu, so there was about a, a you know a, a gap of over a decade. And then he picks it back up in the 30s when uh, said you know hey this is really paying the bills you know so. Uh, but and also uh, a book series that I think gets better as it goes along, which is not usually the case with any kind of uh, uh, a book series. They typically start strong and then you know fade. But why uh, do you uh, why why do you think they got better? Do you think that Romer became a better writer over time? Uh, not only that, uh, but you know the style does get built, uh, gets a bit more modern. You know, very starts out very that almost you know Victorian style style of prose and everything. But and plus the first three books are very episodic because they were serialized. You know, there's a, a mystery to be solved, which I guess we could also mention that in the Foo stories, which they start out as Holmesian, somewhat Holmesian style mysteries, more centered around how rather than who because we know it was food but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh that you know they start out as these Holmesian style mysteries and but then they segue into you know once we get into the 30s it's more espionage so maybe they start out as conan doyle and end up a, a lot like ian fleming and i have to believe ian fleming read some of these books you know particularly the ones from the 30s and the 40s and because, uh, you know, uh, as Dr. No is a definite, um, uh, had to be inspired by uh, Fu Manchu. And, you know, the one of the best books in the series, I think, uh, Island of Dr. F- uh, Fu Manchu, is in the, you think, no, it's not an island off the coast of China or anything. This, it's in the Caribbean, voodoo, uh, lore is involved, you know, kind of a you know, little bit of uh, live and let die vibe going on there. Well, I, and, I did not know that. Excellent. And the, at the beginning, uh, when it's more Holmesian, I should say, though Naon Smith is not, certainly not the deductive genius that Holmes is, what makes Naon Smith the ultimate arch enemy of Fu Manchu is his deep, wide-ranging knowledge of Asia, particularly its underworld, and just a implacable resolution determination to destroy Fu and his crime network. Uh, he's not, you know, the, they can't crawl around on the carpet and get clues, you know, and uh, figure out that the left-handed redhead haired guy did it or whatever. 
Uh, no, that's what it. That's one of the funnier things to me is that Nayland Smith uh, is always just portray, uh, portrayed as this very dogged, determined man, and he's not of any uh, special intelligence or anything of that nature. He doesn't seem to have any amazing gifts of deduction or anything of that nature. He just won't stop. Exactly that determination, and uh, as I said, his he's probably more knowledgeable than anybody, uh, particularly, I guess, in British intelligence when it comes to the ways of Asia, you know, when, uh, if some kind of, uh, clue is left, he, you know, it, it, the only other person that might've guessed that would be somebody who, you know, worked at the, you know, a museum or something like that. He knows Asia and the ways of foo, and that's what, uh, makes him such a, a deadly enemy. Well, I wonder how many people in our audience actually know what the Yellow Peril was or uh, or if – well, here's the thing. I think the Fu Manchu novels are the the most obvious bit of fiction that still is kind of kicked around today. I mean they've just, uh, they've just been recently reprinted, and so uh-huh. they're still somewhat in the public eye. But uh, the what caused the whole Yellow Peril thing is a little odd to begin with. I mean any – character or any series of novels that really is kind of based in a very racist background is uh, I think for a modern a modern audience almost automatically suspect but it's it's a very odd thing to begin with um, I knew a little bit about the yellow pair I did some research recently just to make sure that what I remembered was correct um, do you I mean do you know of any other fictional characters or pulps well I know there there were some pulp stories there were a lot of yellow peril uh, pulp stories of course but I can't think of any other character that just a common everyday person on the street might know if you said Fu Manchu they would at least have an idea of what we're talking about but mm-hmm. I can't think of anything else that grew out of uh, that period of um, rather odd and long-lived racism that still to this day hangs on. Yeah, uh, Fu may be unique in that. I guess the character was just so interesting, and um, I wouldn't say nuanced because we are talking about pulp here, but yeah. there was enough substance perhaps to Fu that he stood above the rest, and because the series uh, changed – it changed how it was looking at uh, Asians and Asian culture, that it was that it's been able to survive that. And, of course, the, you know, the Fu Manchu mustache, which people may yeah. know nothing about the character. But if you say Fu Manchu, they they can they can picture the mustache, which, of course, never appears <laughs> in any of the books. He is uh, practically hairless and, you know, bald with no mustache. But. When I'm reading him, I still picture the mustache because, you know, Carlaw, Christopher Lee, it just it works with the character, uh, you know. So, and it is and I, kind of an unmistakable visual idea. Once it's there, we, it, it, it's never not used from there on. Once it's established, everyone copies it from there on. And I believe I guess pretty much uh, established for the uh, for film. Uh, I, I, I see where. You know, I know of that there was apparently some there were some Fu Manchu films made in like the late 20s, at least two, I guess, before Mask of Fu Manchu in 1932 with Boris Karloff. And I and after that, before the Christopher Lee films, 
there was like a, even a brief television series on American TV in the 50s. And uh, also, uh, from what I read, a, a fairly well-regarded Republic serial, The Drums of Fu Manchu, which I guess yes. probably had nothing to do with the actual uh, book of that name. But I have never been able to see any of those. Uh, the really? only Right. The only foo that I've been able to see in all, 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 over all these years has been the Karloff film and the five Christopher Lee films. And I guess, of course, I guess the last ever attempt to do something with foo was uh, a comedy with Peter Sellers. I think maybe the last film he ever made before he passed away. But uh, yeah, the uh, fiendish plot of Dr. Fu Manchu, which actually was probably the first place I ever encountered the character as a kid on HBO. Oh really? Really? Yeah. Well, I've I've never seen that film, but I've heard it's like horrendously bad. <laughs> well, I was a kid at the time, and I didn't think it was great. But there is that urge to revisit it, you know, as an older person to see if there's something there because um, I'm a huge Peter Sellers fan, and even bad Peter Sellers has a few good moments in it. So <laughs> it's something I'd like to see again now. I could just, uh, I mean, I, I, my, in my worst imagination, not having seen it, I see, you know, like I'm sure it's, I would, I would think it might be full of like some really cringe worthy, you know, uh, Asian jokes, you know, or you would jokes. be correct, sir. So, so real super broad characterization. It's interesting that, you know, and I guess we can straight up, you know, particularly when talking about the films, uh, address the elephant in the room, which is, you know, yellow face, which the most yeah. famous films all have non-Asian actors playing the character. Um, well, you mentioned that you'd not seen um, the uh, the earlier, the, the pre-Karloff versions uh, uh, that were done in film. I, about 20 years ago, actually did see some really bad, dupey VHS copies of the two earlier, um, or at least one of the earlier Fu Manchu films that had Warner Olin playing Fu Manchu. It was oh, Charlie Chan fame, yes. Yeah, yeah, I'm a huge Warner Olin fan from the Charlie Chan stuff. And of course, Warner Olin being a Swedish actor playing an Asian character is, uh, I guess, just something that became his stock in trade, obviously. Mm -hmm. But um, I remember enjoying the... Uh, the earlier film, the, uh, the one with the one with Warner Olin that I got to see, uh, but I didn't think it stood out as anything in particular. It was a little raw, and that's something that I think carried over very effectively to the 1932 film with Karloff. That rawness was still there. Oh, sort of a pre-code, um, I guess. You know, they, they, you know, maybe things they couldn't do, and yeah, <laughs> yeah, after 1934 or five when the, the when the code went into effect, but uh, you know. It's interesting to 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 look at the fact that when you have the you know the yellow face controversy, and when it's played for la deliberate laughs, say in the case of Sellers, again, I'm just this is just supposition on my part, not having seen that film, but you know we've all seen that done in like comedy sketches or the very infamous Mickey Rooney portrayal in Breakfast at Tiffany's of a, of a uh, Japanese man. Yeah, uh, that's. Uh Talk about a blight on a, an otherwise great film, right? You know, and when it's when it's done for laughs, it's it's just really at its just you know off most awful. <laughs> I know. When, it, even when, as a kid it, in the seventies, I never thought that stuff was funny. I don't understand it. 
Right. And but when it's done seriously uh, in the case of, say, you know, Fu Manchu here, um, the character is not humorous in any way. Uh, it's totally straight, uh, serious. Um, and if you match that with an actor with screen presence, you know, a definite screen presence and a sibilant voice, um, it can work and still does work. And I, whereas I absolutely understand how uh, any Asian person, you know, could on the surface be uh, offended by some of the portrayals, uh, particularly in the 1932 film. Fu Manchu is well over six feet tall. He's supposedly six four, six five. Now, yes, there are tall, very tall people in China and Asia, uh, but I don't, you know, know many Asian actors that are of that height. Uh, so, you know, again, whereas Lee was perfect, absolutely perfect physically for uh, Fu, other than they, you know, n none of the films do the um, the green eyes, the luminous um, cat-like green eyes, which are a, a always featured in all of the novels, very uh, uh, memorable aspect of them and of the character. But uh, when you have an actor, he may not be of the uh, ethnicity of the character, but when it's a larger-than-life character like Fu is, and you can get a larger-than-life actor with a lot of screen presence and a great voice and match them together, I think it still works. And in the case of the Fu Manchu films, uh, I think it does work. Well, I'm um, always impressed by Christopher Lee, of course, and I think his portrayal is very good in those five films that were made in the 60s. But I always enjoy a little bit more what Karloff did. Yeah, um, he's shorter than the character really should be. Yes, with the, I'm sure you noticed the giant uh, Frankenstein platform shoes. They got yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but the thing is, um, Karloff really throws himself into that role with a a vibrant energy. I mean, he's chewing the scenery like a madman in that movie. And then yeah. in scenes where it's necessary, he's also very cool, calm and collected very much. Someone trying to uh, sway you by his arguments, by offering you even my daughter. Yes. <laughs> I have brought you here for great tidings. I am the most unfortunate of men. I have no son to follow me. Therefore, in shame, I ask you to receive a message from my ugly and insignificant daughter. Uh, I do really enjoy the 1932 film, uh, though... I have to say, as far as Fu portrayals, uh, I, I think Lee wins hands down and that Fu of the novels doesn't get that emotional. And actually, people might be surprised to hear that is not really a sadist. Uh, he's totally amoral, yes, in pursuit of his goal of world domination. But, you know, it, if I got to torture people, I have people need to be murdered. Well, so be it. That's the way it is. Yeah, but that is a difference going back to the novels just recently Karloff, that I noticed. Yeah. 
Karloff's Fu Manchu, I mean, he straight up gets off <laughs> on torturing people. And that well, not as much as his daughter. Right, right. Yes, I think um, Mer- I think Myrna Loy may have uh, faked an orgasm on screen during the whipping scene. I'm not sure. <laughs> yes, I was like, it's too. Sh- this this scene is too short. They needed to keep it going <laughs> there. But you know, they would have you know, I guess whipped the guy into hamburger by then. But uh, true. Uh, yeah, he's a uh, uh, Karloff is wonderful in that film. Um, though, yeah, the sadism and just the way, like uh, when he has the poor. Uh, Professor uh, Sir Lionel Barton, who is a character in the novels and appears in, in a number of them, and does, does not die. You know, spoiler alert: he does die in the thirty-two. Uh, uh, you know, has him strapped there under the bells, and he's just like lo- he's caressing him and like, oh, this, you know, oh, are you hungry? You know, and uh, well, I, are, I are love that scene, especially when he offers him the salt water. And then the whole that whole sequence when he offers him the salt water, lying to him that it's water, and then throws the water in his face. That's just a a, a beautiful scene of uh, that that could play like out of one of the novels, really, because he's just he's he, he shows his anger there at the end, but it, it but it's not verbally given. He's just he's just showing it in his face, which. Okay, maybe that's maybe it isn't really something that would come out of one of the novels, but it's such a visceral scene, and it's and it's so well played. Oh, I agree. I think there's either the 32 film is it feels too short, or it's just because there's not enough Karloff in it uh, and, and Myrna Loy. Uh, some of the yeah. other folks in the film, uh, not the the actress. I can't remember her name. I don't know. Maybe she was great in some other things, but he plays the uh, the heroine. I know and she's as flat as a is pancake. Just fucking awful. She I is. Mean, <laughs> I mean, and here's the thing. I was I was listening to Gregory Mank's commentary track on the DVD, and he talks about how she was really highly regarded in a lot of other films. And there's a part of me that goes, she was just not into this or something. Yeah, but yeah, perhaps that's it. She just thought this material is beneath me or whatever, so I'm just going to ham it up. I mean, she's she's trying to outdo Karloff, but you know, hey, he's he's got uh, permission to do that because he's playing a larger than life supervillain. You're just the damsel in distress, but you know, it's like she's you know grabs people and it's like it's ripping the flesh off their arms. You know, she's so intense and it's just yeah. she's just awful in that movie. And whereas he's pretty good, I guess old uh, Lewis Stone, that's who it is, uh, who plays Nayland Smith, who they called nylon smith continually in the film for some reason <laughs> yeah uh but you know he, he's he's not bad but uh he's way too old <laughs> you know and, and rather american but uh <laughs> but with and a lot of st- in the a lot of things in the film make no sense uh in the the really fun laboratory scene uh with the serum is being concocted and injected into the uh, hero there who's strapped to the to the table uh Foo, and this is, you know, this is in remotest Mongolia, and many of Foo's henchmen seem to be uh, African for some reason. You know, yeah, I don't no. know that. And they're, you know, this incredible production design, which I think is my favorite next to Karloff, uh, Karloff's performance, is the pro- absolutely gorgeous production design of the film. 
in, in you know into the lab a foo's laboratory here and there's he's got some of his bare-chested henchmen are just standing up against the wall on pedestals and i was like it's you <laughs> know this looks exactly it's like this looks like um the, the dancer should come out for the opening number at the oscars or something uh <laughs> Uh, and in fact, some of this, yeah, some of the other sets there in Pooh's Lair kind of look like something out of a Buzz, Busby Berkeley musical. I don't know if they re- recycled them or whatever, but it does. The movie looks great. Uh, oh, it's, just, it's a beautiful looking film. I mean, remember, it was produced by MGM and they were not averse to spending money to make their movies look good. Even a, you know, pot boil, a pulp pot boiler like this, uh, because, yeah, I mean, the just the 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 safe house where all all, all the the good guys are kind of hiding out to to get ready to leave uh and of course the uh the tomb of Genghis Khan with that really intricate uh, uh door carved door uh yeah and then Fu's uh fortress there uh where he you know keeps his death ray <laughs> <laughs> Which I mean, I, I love death rays. I I, I, I I can't hide it, you know. So when you get you know cool supervillain like Fu plus a death ray, uh, you know. Oh, you got uh, a movie then, baby. Ex- exactly, exactly. But yeah, and uh, also. Uh, uh, Fu's daughter, which I don't think her name is ever spoken in the film. In the credits, she's listed as Follow C. Yeah. Uh, in novels, Fu's daughter was named uh, Follow Sui. Uh, but hey, Fu's daughter, and of course Christopher Lee films, uh, Lin Tang for some reason. Um, but uh, and like her, I guess her, her boudoir there in the fortress uh, with that big circular. I don't know how to describe it, but then it's just it's just gorgeous. I love the way the movie looks, and when you can take um, when you got the, the money to throw at the screen like that, that's I think that really helps sell the. Uh, pulp pot boiler experience, you know, cause you can immerse yourself in it. And, um, uh, yeah, that's definitely, I think, uh, along with Karloff, just having a blast, uh, is the absolutely wonderful look of the film. Well, it's a very lush film and it's one that I love going back to. And what's weird is, okay, what you can see now on video is the full uncut version and it's still shorter than I want it to be. It's only an hour and eight minutes long. And every time I go back to it, I, I have to admit, I watch it every couple of years and when I go back to it, I'm always shocked when I realize how short it is because my memory of it is there's just so much that happens and that's because so much happens, but I'm always looking at the time I'm clicking by and I'm going, my God, this thing moves like a bullet. And it's because when you look back on the film, all of these events occur and they occur rapid fire, but your mind looking back on them always expands them out because all the torture scenes seem longer in memory all of the the kind of deliciously vicious and evil stuff that goes on always seems like it takes longer to unfold on screen than it really does and it just i'm i it, i'm hard pressed to to think of a movie that is this short that in my mind seems like 2 hours in length mhm mm-hmm. oh i feel the same way perhaps they kept it that short and uh, the pace so fast so that one wouldn't notice that you know, some things just don't make sense. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, 
it's a it's it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a really entertaining 68 minutes that's that's for sure though you know like i said some things don't make sense you do find yourself wondering towards the end it's like why is Fu wearing that stupid ass looking hat that <laughs> looks like <laughs> a cross between some Carmen Miranda would would wear and a uh, artificial holiday tree or something with pomegranates on it? I don't know. <laughs> well, the well the, the the joy of a pulp story, the joy of a pulp adventure, is in the telling and not in the thinking. Let's be honest. Right. Yes. For all the areas where it say diverts from the Fu books. And there is one of the Fu novels is called the mask of Fu Manchu and has almost virtually nothing to do with the film, which came out the same year. But if I'm, if I recall the novel takes place mostly in Cairo and there is no death ray alas, but, uh, <laughs> um, it, you know, so it diverts, you know, it, you have Fu, it, they make him a straight up, you know, torture, love and sadist who is, he's, he's really getting his jollies there. Uh, uh, he is gleeful at inflicting this uh, pain to get what he wants, but they do manage to incorporate quite a few uh, elements. Um, usually, uh, you know, like the, the Dakoi who uh, scales up the tree or something. And, you know, he uh, goes across a, a, a line and hanging outside the building and throws the knife, uh, kills one of the, uh, one of the explorers there. Uh, that's very much something out of the novels, which, you know, Fu known for his bizarre methods of assassination um, and frequently employing uh, uh, Dakoids who are very, I don't know. They're weird. He employs weird killers, contortionists, acrobats, almost, uh, you know, physical uh, freaks that can perform uh, things that a normal person could not. Uh, And of course, in conjunction with when he's not using those type of uh, uh, killers, uh, it wouldn't be employing the, uh, uh, poisons and toxins derived from exotic plants and insects and reptiles, which, you know, so we do get, we definitely get a flavor of that in the movie, you know, in the lab scene where he's, you know, milking the spider and taking stuff out of the snakes and all that. Yeah. I think uh, there's definitely a spider that lost his life while making this film. <laughs> Well, that's another thing. The, the, the 32 film, Mask of Fu Manchu, for me, is also, as much as I enjoy the later uh, Christopher Lee Fu Manchu films, this is the one that seems to have a lot of the flavor of the novels in a way. Uh, yeah, Karloff may not be quite right, but the, the plot of this, what Fu Manchu is trying to do, really feels like something out of one of the novels. I mean... His whole scheme here is to get his hands on the sword and mask of uh, Genghis Khan to claim himself to be the reincarnation of the Conqueror and then to uh, get the people of Asia and the Middle East to rise up and to wipe out the white race. That is very much a a very pulpy uh, story that um, feels right for this kind of thing. Whereas um, the further along you go in the um, Christopher Lee Fu Manchu films, by the time you get to the third one, Vengeance of Fu Manchu, it seems that Fu is much more interested in 
the vengeance part of things than the turning himself into an, a world ruling god. And um, it, it's like he lost focus. <laughs> <laughs> well, his uh, foo schemes are are uh, myriad, I guess we could say. Uh, but yeah, you're you're right in the sense uh, of that. You know that definitely the uh, mask and sword. Hey, I'm the new Genghis Khan. Join me. We'll sweep across the world. And there's that one great line um, in the 32 film at the very beginning where Nayland Smith or, or is it Nylon Smith or something uh, <laughs> is saying that, you know, if, if ever Fu Manchu, you know, draws that mask across his wicked eyes and grasps that sword in his cruel bony hands, then all Asia rises. You know, uh, I, I love that line. It's just, that's pure pulp goodness. But uh, and why I guess wouldn't it, these people rise up when you're being told by a man holding a giant golden sword to rise up, kill the white man and take his women. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. While, and of course, you know, he does say that while wearing that utterly ridiculous hat. So I mean, it takes a little <laughs> bit of edge off there, but uh, I guess, yeah, that's, that would scheme would definitely uh, fall within uh, the novels uh, portrayal of what Fu's ultimate goal is, you know, to, he wants China to dominate the world, and he will run China. But Fu is not a genocidal monster in the sense that, you know, there's nothing really that I can recall from the books where, you know, he's, he's not, you know, kill the white man and take his women. Um, he employs uh, people of all, you know, uh, ethnicities and creeds to... Uh, yeah, you know, to fulfill his plans, and our uh, people of every race are part of his organization. He has no problem with that. I guess he's he's kind of like uh, you know he's a Napoleon in that sense, a meritocracy. If you if you can do great things for me, then hey, I, I you're 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 with me. You're my right hand guy, whether you're Chinese or, or or German or English or whatever or American. And I think that's where you see the influence of the, the the American version of the fear of the yellow peril creep in in this film because the you're right it is a it is a kind of twisting of Fu Manchu's mode of operation he didn't he didn't uh, limit himself to any one race any one nationality any one ethnicity you're right uh, it was. If you look at the books, a meritocracy, if you could do the job and you were on his side or he could sway you to do things for him, he was fine with you. He didn't care. But when you fold the yellow peril into things and you have this kind of fear of the Asiatic hordes coming to, you know, like a rising tide of these yellow people coming from the Orient to um, take all our jobs, that seems to have been the prevailing fear at the time boy the the fears never change the uh the ethnicity or national origin just changes huh yeah i, I don't really know it's looking back it's odd to think you know where you know the whole yellow yellow peril thing you know came from and and, and it's i guess there was different senses of the peril whether you were say an englishman or an american i mean english did not have um Immigrant communities, you know, the building of the railroads uh, and out west and everything like that. They didn't have that if you were English. But, of course, they had the late, you know, empire. So they were in contact with uh, uh, Asian peoples that way. 
from what I understand, I guess what uh, the was it the Boxer Rebellion of 1900 or something must have really had a profound impact. Uh, yeah, that's what really pushed the uh, Yellow Peril idea into the public consciousness kind of worldwide. The Boxer Rebellion, where uh, a, a large number of uh, uh, people were murdered uh, in China, uh, this small group of fanatics uh, decided that they wanted to push out all the colonial influence that was currently in country, and their way of doing this was to kill uh, what turned out to be just a lot of Christians, but unfortunately, what they ended up doing was not just killing uh, foreigners of Christian uh, religion, they ended up killing a lot of their own converted um uh, fellow citizens. So uh, the Boxer Rebellion was used as kind of a, a touch point when trying to inflame people uh, to be against the uh, the Asiatic hordes and to fear them and to kind of use that for, well, all the things that you would use that kind of generalized fear of a different country or a different culture to do. Yeah, the uh, I mean, so, uh, the, uh, it's hard to imagine, particularly you know, since back then they didn't have the internet and all that, you know, the instant communications that we have. That 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 event, the Boxer Rebellion, apparently had such a profound impact on people's thinking and and just the culture at large that you know it would still be resonating in po- in popular culture, you know, thirty you know, 32 years later with, you know, mm-hmm. mask of Fu Manchu. So yeah, that really, uh, I, I never under- understood how it was that. I mean, cause you know, I guess from what, from what I recall, it, it was, uh, you know, a, a, a kind of a, re- a religious or spiritual movement that got started. And uh, bottom line is kind of like a cult, got formed and a very populous country like China, even when you have a, a minority of people involved in something, that's a lot of people. And they really, you know, the, I guess the very violent rampages that occurred before, you know, the imperialist Western powers came in and put it down really just, I guess, shocked the world and uh, unfortunately resulted in a lot of negative feelings or attitudes about just Asian peoples in general. And particularly when you think that, you know, China was at that time was not a, an advanced country as far as, you know, they're, they didn't have fleets and giant uh, uh, fleets of air airplanes or battleships or even really well-organized armies. They couldn't even govern themselves at that point because of factionalism and so forth. So to think that they were going to sweep the world uh, I don't know where people got that such paranoia from, but of course, I don't know, maybe Fu Manchu scared them or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm always fascinated by, um, hi- history that is kind of hidden from view. Uh, the things that we, you know, we aren't taught in school because they aren't, um, not, not because they're afraid to teach them just because you're talking about a, a historical overview that has to skip over certain certain portions of things. But some of the reading I've done on the Yellow Peril has has, has just been absolutely fascinating. There was this great quote to, to tie it back to Mask of Fu Manchu. There's this uh, great quote from um, an academic named Gina uh, Marchetti, who identified the, the uh, psychocultural fear of Asians as, quote, rooted in medieval fears of Genghis Khan 
and the Mongolian invasions of Europe. The Yellow Peril combines racist terror of alien cultures, sexual anxieties, and the belief that the West will be overpowered and enveloped by the irresistible, dark, occult forces of the East. And if that doesn't say Fu Manchu to you, I don't know, man. <laughs> Excellent point, yes. Um, but yeah, it's it's something that has to be, uh, you know, when, from our point uh, our vantage point now in the 21st century to, to look at these films, even, you know, even the Christopher Lee films from the sixties that, you know, if we can put them in context, then we, then we can, you know, we can still enjoy them for just, you know, good rip roaring, uh, uh, pulp adventure stories. I don't think that there's ever going to be 
another series of Fu Manchu films made. Let's put it that way. I don't see it ever happening again. I don't know that there's an audience out there for it. I think it would take some work to get the American public or just the worldwide audience set for a, a new batch of Fu Manchu stories on the big screen. So I don't ever see it happening. But in the 1960s, you could manage it. And uh, Harry Allen Towers, the producer Harry Allen Towers, um, produced this series of five Fu Manchu films uh, starting in 65, The Face of Fu Manchu. And you're right. I think that uh, it is generally considered the best, of, uh, the best of the five. I know that Christopher Lee claims that he wished he hadn't done the other four because the only good one was the first one. Well, I would disagree with uh, with Mr. Lee on that point. Uh, I do enjoy uh, the. In fact, I might even uh, the face of Fu Manchu. Kind of, I it had the the biggest budget. Um, I think it's got the, probably the best script, but it's got some other problems that are actually addressed in the subsequent second and third films. Um, for instance, you know, the first there is a, a really cool scene that kind of sets up the uh, the relationship between Fu and uh, Commissioner Nayland Smith in the, uh, the opening of the film with the execution, supposedly, of Fu Manchu, who is it's a, an imposter substituted by our uh, villain to uh, take the fall for him and be beheaded in his place. But. You know, so pretty cool scene, and you know the the, the, the execution takes place, and Nayland Smith actually, he, everybody leaves. He stands there by himself in the courtyard and salutes, and then it starts raining, and then you know roll opening credits. But you know, and that's really cool. But the one of the first things you see in that sequence is the executioner, who is this big hairy English guy with fake um you know uh, asian eye makeup on and he's so obviously not an asian person <laughs> yeah it's kind of distracting wow that's really uh you know uncool it just it looks bad it's like they couldn't have found one asian actor to play the headsman in that scene which that 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 one little thing there kind of drags down because there's like a when he whacks off the uh the uh, victim's head there. Uh, he looked the 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 uh, actor playing the executioner looks right at the screen, you know, and it's just like <laughs> you know, you've, all you can think of is that guy is not Chinese, you know, right? <laughs> uh, and this is addressed uh, in the second and third films, uh, the Brides of Fu Manchu and the Vengeance of Fu Manchu, where you have a lot more Asian actors playing the. Uh, henchmen and the the Dacoits and uh, various characters and even the uh, the by the third film, which apparently part of it was filmed in Hong Kong using Shaw Brothers uh, sets, and that adds you know uh, that adds greatly to the uh, to the film I think. Uh, but they do ha- even have an, an Asian actor as one of the heroes, and that the the one thing that really drags a uh, face of Fu Manchu down a few notches is the, it's populated by a lot of Englishmen playing Chinese guys and they're I mean they don't they don't even get it halfway close is there any kind of uh, you know halfway close up of these guys are in the background they grab somebody or they're fighting with uh, the heroes and you just all you're thinking of is 
that guy is not Chinese. <laughs> He's yeah, not yeah. Asian. And because it, it's well, so, you know, they, it's so obvious they could have. And, and I guess Don Sharp, who was the director of the first two uh, Christopher Lee films. Yeah. Uh, and also did some some great work for Hammer. Uh, guy's a good director. And I just don't know why he didn't try to like, OK, I know maybe we, we for whatever reason, uh, I guess they were mostly uh, the first film was mostly filmed in Ireland and probably in 1965 Ireland or whatever. There weren't a whole lot of Asian actors <laughs> available, uh, but whatever. The I think reason, that has to be what it is. That's the I mean, you you have to import these guys or you have to find them in the local population and either they're there or they're not. And then they have to be willing to be actors to come on and do these movies, you know? Right. And you would think, you know, well, Hey, I, I don't have enough um, Asian actors here for the cast. So I'll maybe try to shoot some of them, the henchmen in the shadows more or something to maybe de-emphasize them or they're wearing hoods or something like that to, uh, to try to, you know, uh, fudge that a bit and that's really i think mainly the only the, the, the main fault of, of of the first film because you know it does have a very fu manchuian uh scenario in that you know it's a the biological weapon and uh there's lots of kidnapped scientists in these <laughs> in the christopher lee films and of course I know, they, that seems to be his main method of getting things done is kidnapping scientists who have incredibly hot daughters that right, he can that, threaten to make the scientist do what he wants. Yes. And, uh, you know, so the, the, I guess, you know, it's a biological weapon uh, made from a special, unique uh, poppy or orchid or something like that that only grows in a specific area of, of China. And uh, the, the really great scene um, where the, you know, remember Fleetwick when the foo warns England of that he is going to do something terrible and he does it and a whole small village is wiped out. Uh, and then Nayland Smith and the, uh, uh, Dr. Petrie and the, uh, the army come in afterwards and they're kind of going through this, you know, village where everybody has been killed. And, uh, that's, you know, uh, I think that, I think that's, that's a pretty cool scene and it, it makes, Foo less of a, you know, a cartoon villain, if you were in that, you know, yeah, this guy is means business and he will kill thousands of people if he doesn't get his uh, get his way, which and also with the the, the, the first two films of Christopher Lee films, uh, Face and Bride is like, I was just having, you know, watching him again recently. I was thinking like, wow, you know, Foo, he's like maybe the, the original media troll. Because he gets on the radio and, you know, the ma major uh, form of uh, mass communication in the er 1920s or early 30s when the, the films are set. And, you know, he breaks into the BBC and, you know, announces, I, you know, hey, I'm going to do this and you will all bow down before me, you know. So, <laughs> yeah, he's kind of the uh, he. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, maybe the first worldwide media troll there. But well, the, I have to say. um Years ago, I started watching these uh, Christopher Lee Fu Manchu films uh, just by happenstance. I got my hands on uh, the first one, and I think I taped uh, Vengeance off of uh, Cinemax or something. I don't remember. I was seeing them in a very haphazard fashion, and they don't mm -hmm. necessarily have to be watched in any particular order to enjoy them. I mean, it, exactly, kind of, yeah. It, 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 
it kind of makes it more interesting. The, the first and the second kind of flow together in an interesting way. But one of the things I have to say, I had not been a big fan of these Christopher Lee Fu Manchu films at all. I thought they were at best okay, uh, at worst boring and a little slow. So when I decided to go back to them just in the past couple of months, I have to say I was really surprised. Um, I sat down, going to watch them in order, uh, watched Face of Fu Manchu, and I really liked it. I don't think it's a, a, a great film. I don't think it's a, you know some kind of amazing classic, but Face of, Fu Manchu, Face of Fu Manchu really works. And I think a lot of that comes down to... Uh, Don Sharp, he he knew how to marshal his forces. He knew how to use what his uh, producer gave him. And in this case, the producer also wrote the screenplay. So he really kind of was, uh, it really kind of was a Harry Allen Towers joint with Don Sharp kind of directing the actors, I guess. But it works. Face of Fu Manchu is actually a pretty effective little movie, and I really enjoyed it. And I think, I, I, don't, I don't have anything to back this up, but it almost seems as if the budget's crept slowly downward as mm-hmm. the series moved on because uh, Face of Fu Manchu was even shot in a wider aspect ratio than the rest of them. Um, it was shot 235, a very wide screen, and it uh, it looks quite good, And at least the print that I have, which is a British DVD of it. And it's, huh? it's a solid, well-done, good little pulp adventure film made 1965, of all things. Um I'm kind of shocked. If you know anything about Harry Allen Towers, he was a British film producer who is kind of renowned for being a bit of a penny pincher and someone who wasn't so afraid. Con man, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. I wasn't. I wasn't necessarily going to go there, but he wasn't <laughs> above forcing you to put his uh, his hot girlfriend in the films, Maria Rom, which happened mm-hmm. in a lot of his later movies. That actually happened in uh, this series in Vengeance of Fu Manchu, the third film, but. That's not necessarily a good thing. Maria Rahm was gorgeous. But the thing about Harry Allen Towers is the first thing you would have thought that he would have done would have been to just have the films take place in modern day, just have them take place in the 1960s because that's cheaper. But he, for the entire series, actually kept them in uh, the 1920s slash 1930s, which is a little strange. Um, because good Lord, that had to make it more expensive. You got to go run all those cars and you have to make sure that your wide shots don't include TV aerials. If you can manage it, nice things like that. So going back to this series, my opinion of it has grown. I really did feel that they were lackluster and to a degree as the series goes on, lackluster is a term that I think that you can employ, but for the first couple especially, I like these movies. As you were the leader of the rebellion, you shall be the first to go to the snakes. Release that girl at once. Commissioner Nayland Smith, foolhardy as ever. Release that girl. She will not be released, and neither will you. But your presence will add to our celebrations. You have nothing to celebrate, Fu Manchu. The arms conference is safe. You are beaten. That is where you are wrong, Commissioner. In a few moments, there will be no arms conference. 
You will release that girl now and order your men to line up over there. I will count three before I fire. One, two, send her to the snakes. As far as the Christopher Lee film, uh, Fu Manchu films go, uh, I think, you know, I, I, again, I prefer them. Probably, it's hard to say. I mean, I, there's so many things I love about the 32 Karloff film, but I guess particularly the first three Christopher Lee films, they they do a good job of, if not capturing the letter of the book series, they certainly capture the spirit. And, um, you know, with the whatever, you know, the maybe not so much the third film, but the particularly uh, definitely the first uh, two, the the schemes are suitably Fu Manchuian, if that's a word. Yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, they've got the pretty good period detail. And they're like, I know they're like, it seems often it's like, you know, we rented these vintage cars and we're going to use the hell out of them. You know, so we <laughs> yes. get some car chases. But I don't, I don't mind that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, uh, occasionally, I think, no, no, having watched them fairly recently, uh, noticed that some of the costumes for the, the uh, actresses, uh, and I refer to the shapely, fine looking ones, uh, are <laughs> a bit anachronistic. They should maybe. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but that, hey. I ain't sweating it. Uh, it's cool with me. <laughs> you know? uh, well, I thought it was interesting that the second film, The Brides of Fu Manchu in 1966, um, it, it seems as if, okay, first of all, in the film, the women are never referred to as the brides of Fu Manchu. They're all just the daughters of various scientists that Fu has kidnapped so that he has leverage over their fathers. Which, which would be a much longer title. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's something I never, I, I never could understand why they didn't use the title, the victims of Fu Manchu or something like that. Does that sound more um, threatening or menacing? Yeah. Uh, it, yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. They're, they're one of the novels in the series is called the bride singular, the bride of Fu Manchu. So I don't know. Maybe they just looked down the list of the titles and said, "Yeah, we can. We'll have some some attractive uh, ladies in the film. So we'll call it the Brides of Fu Manchu." But yeah, yeah, that makes uh, sense. Well, now here's a question I have for you. I've not read all the Fu Manchu novels. I think I've only read four of them. Um, the Christopher Lee films. Do they use any elements or any plot lines from any of the original novels? Well. Uh, some of a couple at least a couple of the novels do have the kidnapped scientist, uh, and or involved you know kidnapped scientist where the uh, daughter or, or spouse is you know being threatened as a, a means of blackmailing the scientist to do something. Uh, they um, again, like I'm saying, more of the spirit of the thing than the uh, the than the letter. Uh, okay, okay, I was do, just wondering. They, the, you know, the, the Lee's portrayal of Fu, I think is more in sync with the character from the, uh, from the books. You know, he's not, you know, just, he's not really a sadist. He just, Hey, I do these things because I must get what I want. That is the destiny of Fu Manchu. So deal with it, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, so not, not a sadist and, um, they more emphasis on the organization, which 
I don't think in any of the films uh, they ever use the name of Fu's organization. No, which, they don't. Uh, having just recently rewatched the first three, the Saifan is never mentioned. Exactly. And that's kind of a – it's a prototype specter, uh, I, 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 one could say, uh, in that members are of – all nations, all walks of life, uh, all nationalities, all kind of different skills. You know, they serve Fu uh, in his goal, uh, and I guess in uh, the people that work for him who aren't uh, Chinese or Asian, you know, they, hey, if, if Asia dominates the world and Fu, as with Fu as their leader, hey, as long as I got my slice of the pie and it's nice, I'm cool with that, you know. So yeah, but they never use the name of the organization in the in those in the films, and I've always wondered, you know, why that was. We'll never know, I guess. Um, it, to, it's always just the organization or his gang or whatever. Um, yeah, I've not found any uh, either contemporary or after the fact uh, conversations with either Harry Allen Towers or any of the directors or Christopher Lee talking about that specific element of the the films about how they don't give a name to his organization. It's always just Fu Manchu's organization or his criminal organization. That's about how it's referred to. And that's really about it. And it's, it's, it's often the case in the books where it's like, who is, you know, who's the turn, who's the secret member of the side fan, you know, and their nationality has no bearing or, you know, whether or not they could be a member of working for Fu or they could be the people that Fu has coerced to work. Uh, for him or who have he has hypnotized to uh, work for him of course you know that's one thing that um i guess the christopher lee film stress that is a big part of the books also is the uh aspect of hypnotism which is a big weapon in Fu's arsenal because i guess you know he's pretty much like the greatest hypnotist in the world which now more in the books the hypnotism is always done in conjunction with the use of exotic drugs that uh, Fu has concocted yeah. that uh, you know make the people susceptible. Whereas in the in the films, you know, they just glare at somebody or touch their eyeballs with their fingers, and now they're completely you know uh, enslaved to their will or whatever. In the um, films, these Christopher Lee films, it often seems more along the lines of some kind of mental domination. Uh, an, an exerting of the will and an ability to control someone uh, just by the the force of will, which is very strange because it, in in these movies, uh, for instance, I just finished watching last night uh, the third one, uh, Vengeance, and there's a scene where Fu's daughter, you know, in just a couple of seconds, is suddenly in control of this person. I'm like, holy crap! If you haven't done some work to set that up, you are a scary woman. <laughs> Yes, what was it? Uh, uh, Sai Chin, uh, who was great. Uh, the none of the mo uh, movies ever use the character of Fu's daughter as well as they are in the books, which uh, you know they change her name. Um, but in the book, she's often used as a seductress, um, laying honey traps for people that uh, Fu needs to bring under his influence, and she's very the cold. Um, dragon lady, vicious type um, uh, in in the films, but she is terrific and very nice to look at. And uh, yeah. I think only was it in the 
I know in face of Fu Manchu, she disguises herself as a, an old lady or something like that at the museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, uh, that happens a lot in, in the, uh, in the novels. His, his daughter has various, uh, alter egos that she traveled the world as Madame Ingemar and some other, uh, people that uh she uh pretends to be and well you, you bring up the uh the idea of the dragon lady kind of uh, cliche of the beautiful asian woman who cannot be trusted because she's uh you know working for evil ends even outside of the fu manchu thing it's just kind of a kind of a trope of men's adventure fiction for decades was the oriental dragon lady who could not be trusted and i think oh, that's yeah even uh, even like the astro zombies right <laughs> yeah yeah and it's one of the the what well what i think is hysterical about the dragon lady cliche is that sadly i know for myself that as a member of the caucasian race there's a lot in that i can't resist the the asian females i just can't <laughs> There's a natural affinity. I can't stop. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, she, uh, Ms. Chin, did, uh, I'm sure, a lot of other work. and But, you know, it got to play the daughter five times, even for the two unfortunate uh, Jess Franco Fu Manchu films. But I guess mm-hmm. she'll probably always best be known for that one line, and you only live twice, you know. I give you best duck, right? <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, she's 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 uh, I, I I like her. I mean, uh, Myrna Loy is in a in a class by herself, you know, because I mean, again, maybe it's the, the sadism thing. Sai uh, Chin's portrayal of Fu's daughter, I think this she's uh, a bit more. She's got maybe a tinge of sadism there. Uh, oh, but, definitely. You know, it keeps it keeps it controlled. Um, whereas. Uh, pops there you know christopher lee is again not the uh, he doesn't there's torture and as the christopher lee films go on the torture gets more graphic uh and then of course when in even what the uh, the fourth film the, the the first fu manchu film made by jess franco we even get a little uh nudity thrown in yeah um which uh you know the uh, and that's pure exploitation, you know. But hey, that's just, uh, well, I'll tell you this: as far as the character of Fu Manchu's daughter across these various films, um, the Myrna Low, the, the Myrna Loy portrayal in uh, Mask of Fu Manchu, I always got the sense that the idea they seem to try to be getting across in a couple of those scenes is that. Um, Fu Manchu's daughter in Mask of Fu Manchu just might occasionally fuck a man to death. Um, uh, and what a way to go. Yes, uh, yes. Not that that would yeah, be a bad they, thing. But the, uh, again, the, the, the idea from the Christopher Lee film seems to be that uh, she doesn't really seem all that concerned about sex at all. And she just wants to torture people to death. And so, once again, uh, Myrna Loy wins. I'm um, going to go with that method of death if I can. <laughs> He is not entirely unhandsome, is he, my father? For a white man, no. May I suggest, however, a slight delay in your customary procedure? You have further need of him? I have. He shall still be the means of discovering for me where they have hidden the sword and mask. And for that purpose, you will... Precisely. (laughs) Yeah, the, uh... 
uh, of course, you know, it's, it's a, it's a quick nosedive into the ground once, you know, uh, Jess Franco, uh, takes over, but, uh, I, I completely I, agree. There's no worse film produced <laughs> than I, Castle I do, of Fu Manchu. Oof. I, I do like, uh, Brides, uh, though at, at, at first, first time I saw it, and I guess maybe, uh, I could preface this by, um, saying, you know, how, you know, you were saying how you first encountered the, uh, the Fu Manchu films and characters. Now I had seen, they ran the first three Christopher Lee films on the CBS late movie in the early 1970s. And that's where I saw him and was introduced to uh, Fu Manchu. Um, though, uh, it was not, uh, I, I, act, I actually did not see the 1932 film until the DVD came out uh, some years ago uh, when Warner released that uh, Legends of Horror box. I had never seen the film until then. So that was like, oh, wow, it's great. Um, the And fortunately, I had not seen the Franco films until Blue Underground put those out on DVD. So that was my first taste of those. And I was like, well, you know, at least, hey, at least there's they stuck some cool extras on here. <laughs> well, I saw Castle of Fu Manchu thanks to Mystery Science Theater. So I had been warned. Uh, yeah, and uh, let's see, did I, did I see? Okay, yeah. So I guess I had seen Castle, but... Whether one could consider that actually having seen the movie, maybe that's why. So, yeah, I think I, I had seen the MST episode of uh, with the Castle of Fu Manchu. Uh, well, now, here's but, the thing. This may be controversial uh, to your ears, but his Jess Franco's first of the Fu Manchu films, I don't think is particularly good, but I also don't think it's bad. I don't think it's as bad. I guess it's just because I'm comparing it to the next one because yeah. Castle is so freaking <laughs> yeah. bad. But yeah. I can kind of enjoy Blood of Fu Manchu. It's not so bad. There, there are some good aspects to it. Um, I'm trying to think of them, but uh, well, you know, they got a nice, good, nice international cast. Though I was not fond of Richard Green, I think who it was who played who took over as Nalen Smith. Um, yeah, the series had uh, three different actors that played Nayland Smith. Am I right? Uh, yes, the Christopher Lee series. Oh, and they kept the same Dr. Petrie, the sidekick, which I guess I, I, I should mention. Uh, who's that? Howard Marion Crawford or Crawford Marion or something. Howard um, Marion Crawford. Yeah, and he's it. quite solid in these. I enjoy him in these movies. Uh, a good uh, good character actor. And he's, he's, he's pretty good in the, uh, the first two films, though that he devolved – the thing I don't like about uh, uh, the Christopher Lee series is that what they do with the Dr. Petrie character is they basically, they Nigel Bruce him in that he's kind of older yeah. than the character is in the books. Actually, Dr. Petrie, I think is a little bit younger than Nalen Smith is supposed to be. And, um, the, so what I mean by they Nigel Bruce, Nigel Bruce him is they make the character older and dumber. Uh, a little, you know? a little, yeah. yeah. Particularly, yeah, when uh, by the time the Jess Franco films come along, uh, and Doctor Petrie, whereas you know some folks, particularly when they pick up the first couple of Fu Manchu books, they go, God, this. They they might some of them might you know uh, this is just a rip off of Sherlock Holmes because you know you got the uh, in English, the British investigators, uh, a stalwart uh, guy, man of action there, his medical man sidekick, and 
something that they, I, I think, wisely chose not to do in any of the films is uh, one of the things that Nayland Smith does in the books constantly is smoke his pipe, which I think yep. the films, though, this would look just too much like we're ripping off Sherlock Holmes, so we're not going to have him uh, with a pipe. Which well, the other is- night, I have to say, you're you're very much right because the other night I was sitting down to watch uh, Vengeance, no, not Vengeance, uh, Brides of Fu Manchu, and I had a, a friend over, and so I didn't say anything, and just started the movie, and as soon as uh, Nylon Smith and Doctor Petrie are on screen, she looked at me and went, "Is this a Sherlock Holmes film?" Right, and I believe Douglas Wilmer did he not play Sherlock Holmes for a British TV at one point in the sixties? Uh, oh, I don't know. Which, Possibly. And, and, and you know, speaking of these three actors, uh, Richard Green, I think, uh, I guess what, he'd been Robin Hood on British TV in the 50s or something like that. So he, he but he's kind of, I mean, I don't uh, like Nigel uh, Green? Yeah, uh, no, uh, uh, Richard Green. Oh, Richard Green, the, the Robin Hood TV series from the 50s, yeah. Yeah. Right. The third, you know, good actor. I don't think he's, I, I, I really just don't like him in the part. But maybe that's because he's being directed by Jess Franco, who, which, as you know, I, I, I love a number of Jess Franco films. And given his supposed uh, procl- proclivity and fandom of Pulp Fiction that Franco talked about a few times in interviews before he passed away, uh, that he would have done a better job <laughs> with those movies. But no, it is odd right. because that is one of the areas of. Um common common interest between you me and jess franco is he loved <laughs> pulp cinema and pulp novels and all those kinds of stories and i have to wonder i mean because yeah his two fu manchu films are not good but how, you start to wonder what are the elements that made those films turn out quite so bad because we both know by the time you got to that point in this in the uh, series the budgets were torturously low. I mean, they did not have a whole lot to work with. And I'm wondering if you got what you paid for to a degree. I mean, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, Hey, they're at least colorful. The, uh, blood of Fu Manchu is. And, but there's just so, yeah, I, the thing I can't, that was the, I have not watched the, uh, Franco food films for a while. And, uh, I just knew, well, you know, castle is, it's they, barely a movie, right? It's just it's spectacularly inert. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's yeah. like motion. They left out the motion part of motion picture, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but blood, at least you know, and they I guess they shot it down there in uh, Brazil or or you know uh, in South America somewhere. So it's got some good location stuff, and uh, that damn uh, bandit chief irritates the hell out of me they uh the you know big large you know he's fat guy and they they even got him dancing around at one point and he's constantly wearing this little tiny hat that's about three sizes too small that looks like a children's party hat <laughs> stuck on his head for most of the movie luckily <laughs> but, uh, my memories of the film have faded to the point where i can't recall that um the main thing i remember about blood is Let's see, I know, well, Maria Rahm is in it, uh, looking fabulous, because she was a, a, a very beautiful lady. I oh, yeah. I the brunettes, but for, you know, she's, and she could do the ice 
princess thing quite well. But yeah, she's she's great. And uh, but uh, and uh, Harry and or not Harry, Howard Marion Crawford or whatever is back. But <laughs> I don't like uh, Richard Green. And I guess what Foo basically stands around in a cave for most of the movie. Uh, yeah. Uh, but. And now speaking of the three Nayland Smiths, you know, the thing I'll, the, the, the first three films and I, I, I like vengeance a bit more than some people do, uh, though it's got its share of problems, but I really, and if you, if I had to decide between, okay, who's the definitive Nayland Smith, uh, commissioner, Sir Dennis Nayland Smith of, well, in the books, it was, he was, uh, of the commissioner of the colonial police, then Scotland yard. And then towards the end, he's, uh, with MI six, you know, but, uh, of the three actors, uh, that play them in the, in the, in the lead films, cause well, Lewis stone, he's just, he's grandpa Smith there. So it doesn't cut it. But, uh, <laughs> I couldn't really tell you who's the better Smith between Nigel green and Douglas Wilmer, both terrific character actors. And, Whereas Nigel Green, he's got that resolute, uh, dogged determination, man of action thing going. He's just excellent as that. Whereas Wilmer, uh, a character actor I've always really liked and pops up in all kinds of places and all kinds of films, you know, big Hollywood film, El Cid, uh, lots of stuff. But uh, he uh, he captures, I think, Smith's uh, warmth and kindness, whereas um, Nigel Green, not so much. But on the other hand, Wilmer is, you can see exactly when they, okay, bring in the stunt man for the fight scene because he's not. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The stunt doubling in these movies, especially those first three that I've just recently rewatched, the stunt doubling is incredibly obvious all the time. And again, it's like, you know, uh, and I think, you know, Don, Don Sharp, uh, yeah, I noticed that the other night when watching Brides of Benetchew, there's a fight scene in there in the hospital or something. And it's like, wow, this looks look just like an old episode of Bonanza where you know that that is not Lauren Green. Right? You know? Yes. Uh, uh, but well, uh, there's so, a scene, yeah. I think, in Brides where the, the scene starts and you're not aware of. Uh, the fact that it's actually Nayland Smith, you're not you're not aware that, that that's who the character is because the character who he's suddenly in a fist fight with in the dark is unaware of it as well. And when you're watching the scene, it's shot in such a way that it doesn't look like Nayland Smith at all. And so you're like, okay, well we'll soon find out who this character is. And then the lights come on and they're like, oh, it's Nayland Smith. And I'm like, uh, no, that wasn't. I may be wrong, but I think that might actually be in face of Fu Manchu. And that was supposedly, uh, but yeah, I know exactly the, the scene you're talking about. And speaking of these fights, it's interesting that, you know, was in the first two films, some of the characters, and there are a lot of characters, but folks might think, you know, come new to these films, the Christopher Lee films would think like, wow, they are stuffing a lot of characters into these movies. And there, then, and there are they're a pretty big cast, and I guess part of that was due to the the international uh, co-production aspect of them. It's British money, German money, so yeah. you know they have. There's a lot of characters, uh, and but there's like uh, in the first two films, a, a young, young or youngish uh, German scientist is one of the uh, heroic characters that teams up with uh, Smith and, and Petrie, and it's like 
in both films is like, wow, you know, I didn't know is like martial arts or hand to hand combat something you got to to get your uh, science degree in, in Germany at Heidelberg U or whatever, because there's some scrapping scientists, I'm telling Yeah, especially that German character you're talking about in Brides, because um, there was a, okay, when you're first introduced to him, it is an action scene. It is uh, these dacoits attempting to kidnap this woman right from from his side there beside the London Bridge. And it's just like, oh my God, this dude, this dude beats these guys and accidentally kills one of them. That's how good a fighter he is. He accidentally kills one of them. Well, I guess they, they, you know, I said at Heidelberg, you, they, they really stress PE or something. Yeah. He, lay, he lays them out. <laughs> well, um, so yeah, but if you could, if you could mash somehow mash Nigel green together with Douglas Wilmer, you'd have just about the most, the perfect nail and Smith. I, I kind of agree because I, it was a bit of a shock rewatching them this time and having Nigel Green disappear and Wilmer come in for the second and third films. But to be honest, they both they're, they're similar looking guys and they carry they carry themselves in the same way. They play the character in a very similar fashion. So I found the transition okay, just fine, and uh, I did like both of their performances. Um, yeah, you're, you're right. The, the Lewis Stone was too old in Mask of Fu Manchu, and these guys were just about right because he kind of has to be a vital, vibrant uh, guy who can think on his feet and also throw a fist. And these two guys, these two actors, are definitely fit that. They definitely fit that bill. So, no, in the in the uh, third film, I mean, excuse me, the second film. Uh, well, no, I'm, I'm, I was right the first. Time. The third film, uh, Smith is kind of um, he's just put out of the picture for a while since he's captured and on this long journey to uh, uh, Fu's palace there. So he kind of just drops out of the film, you know, with his double being uh, set up to uh, take the fall for murder and so forth. But uh, I actually, uh, the last couple times I've watched it again, I actually come to like Vengeance a bit more because of the more the location shooting there on the Shaw Brothers uh, sets there for the uh, palace. And uh, the um, uh, it's got a little bit jauntier music scores. The first two films, some elements of the score to me sound like, wow, this could have been from a film from the 30s. You know, the, I think uh, that one of the problems with Vengeance is that it sags in the middle. You have the, uh, the, the big, it starts off well and it ends well. But the middle, there's too much time spent with the singer character oh, who... Yeah who has absolutely no purpose in the movie other than, well, she's played by someone. And that's just, you know, that, that kind of weighs the center of the film down, I think. Um, and that makes it a little less enjoyable than the first two, but that's just my, my definition of what makes it lesser than the first two. I don't think it's a bad film. I've enjoyed it, but, um, and it's miles above the last two, but the, um, I think that's what it is, is I think that there was uh, that that singer character being injected into vengeance is kind of what brings the middle of the film down. You could almost if you could eliminate that character, you'd be a little bit better off. Well, hey, she was the producer's, you know, wife, girlfriend. Right? And she's and, gorgeous. Uh, Maria Rom, yes, very nice to look at. Um, and I guess she does have like a little role there at the end, though, of course, the. Uh, you know, just I'll, I'll stand here with my my knuckles to my lips while you guys fight for our lives. Um, 
which, you know, God bless her. I know my wife, I'm saying, you know, you will be in there, you know, you will jump in there if it's, you know, that all the cards are on the table and we're fighting for our lives. You know, I think the, the women are going to contribute uh, a little bit more than that. But hey, you know, that was even in the 60s, that was just a. Uh, the way stuff got, you know, the uh, the damsel in distress. I know thing. it always had to be the damsel in distress. It, it does not, uh, it does not line up with any of the women I've ever known in my life. Trust me. But apparently, <laughs> for decades and decades and decades, the damsel in distress was all you could find. But yeah, if they could have, uh, uh, if they could have uh, left out the musical numbers, or you know, come into the scene where she's just hitting the last two or three notes, you know. And then have the 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 necessary dialogue between the uh, the bar owner and the uh, the Shanghai police captain, you know. Uh, but no, they padded it out with, uh, and I think there's even like a bar fight, you know. That's just yeah, pure yeah. pure padding there. Uh, though I always thought uh, the last time I watched, I thought you know, uh, it was a German actor, Horst Frank, plays the uh, American gangster who uh, goes over to uh, meet with uh, Fu there. And, and he's uh, pretty badly dubbed, too. Yeah, yeah. And I was thinking, you know what would have really been awesome is if, you know, nothing against Frank. He's uh, you're probably familiar with him from a number of spaghetti westerns that he appeared in. Um, yeah, yeah. Usually playing a bad guy. Uh, but it's like, if wow, if Klaus Kinski had played this guy, you know, that would oh, have been awesome. Man. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, 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 um, I, I, I don't know what, maybe I, I really have no excuse for why I like it more than I probably should. You know, I know it's like, I really can't give this movie more than a five or a six, you know, out of 10 for, for yeah. vengeance. Yeah. Whatever. But I still just kind of like it anyway, but yeah, dude, there may be a little fast forwarding there through, uh, the the uh, un, <laughs> unnecessary musical numbers. Well, I don't but, know if we touched on this at the beginning. I kind of wanted to loop back around to um, do. I don't know if we talked at all really about how you first ran across the character. Was it on the page or was it on the screen? Was it those screenings, those late night screenings in the early seventies? Yes, uh, I had. Uh, I didn't know Fu Manchu from you know Mogu Guy Pan or whatever until I probably about ten years old. And the CBS late movie, uh, you probably uh, too young to remember that, but that was like a godsend for the monster kids of my generation because they obviously had a huge uh, Warner package that they had uh, got because they showed all of the Warner Hammer films, you know. Uh, uh, Taste the Blood of Dracula, AD 72, all that good stuff. And also the Fu Manchu films, uh, which uh, the first three for uh, Christopher Lee films, which uh, were released by Warner Brothers over here. And uh, I saw all three of them and, uh, you know, I, that's pretty cool. That's, you know, my alien stuff kind of, you know, kind of bondish, you know, uh, super villain. And, uh, you know, and as I, uh, I think I mentioned earlier, I did not start reading the books until uh, uh, 2012 when Titan oh, that's right. started putting out those really nice uh, reprints. And I, I noticed that, uh, oh, wow, you know, um, the old Fu Manchu classics or whatever. Because uh, I, I vaguely remember as a kid, I believe they also were like paperback reprints in the 60s, maybe through the early 70s. But 
you know, if it wasn't uh, Doc Savage or John Carter or Tarzan, I wasn't, you know, really that interested in it. But uh, so, yeah, and the Karloff 32 film, did, I did not, I had never seen that until Warner released that Legends of Horror uh, set some years. I'm trying to think when that was, was that 2005, 6? I, I, yeah. I can't remember. But, well, uh, so have you, you, you mentioned earlier the serial the Republic made, the drums of Fu Manchu. You've never seen that? I have never seen that. And I've I heard good have stuff. seen that. It's pretty damn good. Uh, is it available on disc or? You know, I think it may actually be the way I have it uh, is years ago. There was a there's a and this site still exists called Serial Squadron. Uh, it's a website, mm-hmm. and they uh, they actually raised money and uh, did some cleanup on some of the some public domain uh, chapter plays, aka serials from way back in the day. And uh, they did at one point issue on videotape a nicely remastered, cleaned up version of the Drums of Fu Manchu, and that's when I bought it. That was back in the who Lord late nineties, early two thousands when I was going through every Republic serial, I could get my grubby paws on and, uh, drums of Fu Manchu. I still have the videotapes because, uh, well, I, if, if it's issued on DVD, I need to go ahead and get it because it's one that I know I would like to rewatch. And, uh, Fu Manchu is uh, played a bit differently in that he has, he has the Fu Manchu facial hair, but he's bald. And, um, I'll be honest. I don't remember a whole lot about the characterization because I, you know, it's been 15 plus years since I watched it, but mm-hmm. I think you'd get a kick out of the cereal if you like cereals. That's a, that's a big, that's a big problem. A lot of people <laughs> don't enjoy the, well, just the format. Much right, less yeah, the fact the, that these the, are the, 1940s. The format, and yeah. I think it's funny. It just, uh, not having not seen a whole bunch of cereals, uh, but uh, I mean, I do like them because, you know, hey, if you like the, uh, the you know, like the Doc Savage novels or the Shadow and stuff like that, you can't help but like a lot of the elements that they, you know, toss into the serials. It, the problem for me was always finding a good one because so many of them are, okay, yes, the car is going off the bridge, but I know exactly <laughs> what's going to happen at the beginning of the next chapter because he is going to bail out. Of, they'll show him bailing out of the car, you know, before it goes Oh, well, yeah. Bridge. I mean, and, and those tricks... Uh, those kinds of, uh, you know, end of and beginning of uh, chapter, you know, e- each chapter's uh, death defying question mark is the, the, a lot of those are in both the good and the bad ones. But the, what makes the, the good ones better than the bad ones is that they're they're really pacey. They're very fast. They're very fun. The, the, the stories are uh, very interesting. You know, it, it, it gets to the point where they were petering out in the 50s when you're watching one and you realize they ain't even trying man this is this is a very slow story and there's not a whole lot of interest here nobody seems to give a crap one way or the other where in the best of them things like uh, spy smasher or daredevils of the red circle my god you can barely stop to think about the plot much less wonder if there's a hole in it anywhere well i will have to check uh check those out i know i do i have the uh was it 1941 or 43, some period like that, uh, a chapter serial of The Phantom. And yes. it's actually it's actually pretty decent, and it is. Uh, I, I liked it. And for me, I found the, uh, the best way, at least for me, to watch serials is 
watch one chapter and then don't watch the next one until next week or at yes. least a couple of days later, you know, before watching a, a full length film or whatever. Don't don't watch, you know, huge chunks of them or, you know, or binge watch uh, uh, the, the thing uh, because it's just, yeah, it, we, they, the, the repetition can get set in like, oh, well, that's. That's the same footage for the car crash they used two chapters ago. You know, yeah, you, binge watching a, a serial is uh, is definitely not recommended. That's something that actually, if you talk to real serial fanatics, they'll emphasize that you do not want to do that because you'll burn yourself out really, really quickly. I wonder. So maybe, I hope that's not uh, turns out to be a reason why serials and the old classic serials. Uh, you know, fade more into obscurity because of the viewing habits of modern people are getting more, you know, uh, geared towards binge watching and that kind of thing, which for me, maybe two episodes tops. And I'm like, the next chapter can wait. You know, I yeah, have patience. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Me too. That's why it takes me so long to, uh, to go through when Netflix drops an entire series. It, you know, people talk about how, yeah, we binge watch that over the weekend. And I'm like, you are a sick individual. <laughs> Something is wrong with you. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't want to speed read a novel, you know, right. uh, as fast as I possibly could. So I want to, you know, I want to spread it out and think about it for a little while, you know, let it let it steep. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not uh, not not a binge watching type of guy. I probably never will. But, you know. Uh, to each his own, I suppose. Well, I tell you what, if uh, I, I'm I'm not sure, but I think Drums of Fu Manchu may have been issued on DVD. I'm sorry I didn't look that up beforehand. But if uh, it is available, I'll include it as one of the uh, the links in the show notes for this podcast, so that people are curious about that one. Uh, some of these are easy to find. Um, some of the Christopher Lee. Fu Manchu films have been issued uh, by Warner Archives in the past few years, so they're easy to get your hands on. The Karloff film is pretty easy to get your hands on. I think that set is still in print. At least I hope it's still in print. I think so. And so now, um, wouldn't it wouldn't it be awesome if since Warner Warner Brothers uh, owns the uh, Karloff film? And the first three Fu Manchu films, you would have your ultimate Fu Manchu movies uh, set if they, you know, remaster them for Blu-ray with those four films in one package. That would be a good move for them. I, 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 you know, probably would want to avoid any controversy. Uh, you know, it's, that's why you put a nice extra with some film scholars in there, putting it in context. Uh, the, the Titan paperback reprints have an introduction to the to the books that puts the you know the whole yellow peril uh, thing into his historical context uh because we 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 can't just you know throw away some some of these great and classic pieces of entertainment because they reflect society culture and mores the way they were 85 years ago yeah you know uh, we, we, we can't, we can't just toss it all out. Uh, but we, we just need to be, you know, mindful of why they were made that way. Um, uh, you know, and again, even like, uh, you know, coming back around to the, the, the book series, how they start out pretty much with the, uh, you know, full yellow peril, uh, deal and indulge in a bit of, uh, uh casual racism, uh, until you get all the way towards the end of the series where the hero is a Chinese American. Uh, and again, you know, and that foo 
is not the genocidal racist that he is in the Karloff, you know, film. As you know, somebody like me who enjoyed the various characters in many of these uh, series of novels, you know, we we know that they're not going to be uh, the an absolute recreation of what was on the page. But fortunately for most of the food films, they get enough of the ingredients, they get enough of the flavor in there to where if you're a fan of the books, you should probably enjoy the movies or, or the, at least the best of the movies. Even though, you know, um, a couple of aspects or specifically one aspect of the books that never makes it into any of the films, which I think would have um which it's a shame that it wasn't because and that is uh foo's code of honor which plays a big role in some of the stories in that you know um once foo gives his word he's never going to break it even if that means the failure of his present scheme uh so you know you're right i've forgotten that uh, that is a constant in the books and it's never been in any of the films yeah, and that uh, that could have you know it was some, uh, maybe an area of some uh, dramatic tension there that uh, or irony or whatever that uh, you know wow he failed in his scheme because uh, he gave his words you know I will not kill so and so or or do this or that and by gum foo sticks to his word and even as uh, Nalen Smith so determined to destroy foo. Even to Smith, Smith respects him for that. There is mutual respect yeah, there. Yeah, that mutual respect is something that the kind of uh, honor amongst adversaries that I thought was uh, a great continuing thing throughout the books. Yeah, and even in, it, it, even in the early super yellow peril phase of, of the books, uh, even with that going on, uh, Smith is the first one to tell people that this man has the greatest brain of any living human, you know, on earth, you know, his genius is unsurpassed. So he can't, I mean, Smith, he can't be that much racist if he's, he's freely admitting that this Asian man is the greatest brain on earth now, or maybe had ever lived. Well, I think this is uh, I think this is our second podcast together where we're attempting very hard to get people who are probably reticent to try these kinds of uh, stories, these kind of films and these kind of books to try them, to give them a shot, to see if there's something that uh, a modern audience, someone completely unversed in this stuff might enjoy. Uh, I think that if you get a taste of this kind of stuff, if you, if you like adventure stories, if you like this kind of tale, then it's the kind of thing that you will gravitate toward. I know that uh, I, read a lot of different kinds of stuff, but I will always come back to not just the Fu Manchu novels, but Edgar Rice Burroughs and Arthur Conan Doyle, men's adventure fiction in one way or another, the kind of pulpy stuff. And I love it. And I know that um, one of the reasons I like to do these shows with you is to point people toward this stuff to hope and ho- in the hopes that a modern audience, a new audience, people who are necessarily not even heard of this or only know of them through, um, you know, a song or a band or just a mention in something else might actually be encouraged to seek this stuff out and, and see if they enjoy it. Because if 10 people try it, maybe two people will love it and go on to, to read more of the novels and seek out more of the films. Um, cause I, I don't think 
that we're ever, unlike Doc Savage, I really don't think we're ever going to see another Fu Manchu feature film, as I said at the beginning of the show. Yeah, uh, yeah, I certainly can't see that giving, I mean, given the, you know, social situation and uh, people, there would be, you know, cries of political incorrectness or. Well, not just that, yeah, just, it just fears be too, of it being and, read and plus, incorrectly. You would need to find, uh, I have no, I'm, I'm sure, not only the period stuff just doesn't, you know, fly that well with the cell phone generation. And yeah, that's true, too. That, and, I mean, I have no doubt you could probably find an, an excellent, charismatic uh, Asian actor nowadays that could play the role, even though he might have to wear the... Uh, the Frankenstein monster platform shoes like <laughs> yeah. Boris Karloff did. But yeah, the, the period setting, I think food doesn't work in a modern setting and uh, the, yeah, the period setting and then any cries of uh, yellow face or whitewashing uh, back and forth, it would just be they no studio would want to have anything to do with that. So uh, food, we've just got to, um, Enjoy the uh, evil machinations and schemes of Fu Manchu, the malevolent Mandarin, the Lord of Strange Deaths, the <laughs> Devil Doctor, and even as Smith called him a couple times in the books, a Super Devil. I mean, hey, when you're when you reach Super Devil level, <laughs> that's pretty boss, I think. But yeah, we're we're we, we at least we we got the books and we got these uh, these films, particularly the Karloff film and the first three. Christopher Lee films, we you know got those to enjoy. Uh, thank goodness, though the Jess Franco films. <laughs> well, they are what they are. <laughs> yes, they are. Yes, they are. Brian, I want to thank you a lot for coming and doing this, man. This is always a blast. I thoroughly enjoy it. It's it's it's, it's great to talk to you about this stuff, Rod. All right, man. We'll uh, have to start immediately planning whatever our next podcast will be about. Amen. Sounds great. All right, man. Talk to you later. All righty. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Poison pizza in your fortune cookie. Why? I don't know. But he must be doing something wrong. <laughs>